In the Royal Navy, we uh, had a maxim that went a bit like this. And uh, you can tell that we're Navy people because we like things all with the same letter. You know that uh, Anglican ministers often try to give you uh, three things beginning with the same letter. In the Navy, we had six, and it really tried our memories. It went a bit like this. It was prior planning prevents pathetically poor performance, or perhaps something slightly ruder than that, but I would not uh, wish to mention that. Six Ps that made the point that if we were going to perform well, if we were going to give of our best, then we needed to be prepared. And of course, there's nothing new in that, is there? Uh, Baden-Powell said, quite simply, be prepared. And if you think about our daily lives, we do that quite a lot of the time, don't we? But how well we prepare for something shows quite how seriously we're taking that something. So, for example, if it's exams, how well we prepare for our exams, whether at school or at uni, shows how seriously we take those exams. If we take them seriously, we will prepare well. We will revise, we will read, we will learn. Uh, Take a a practical example. This, This last week, when the snow came, If we took the weather seriously and we took uh, what we were wanting to do in the day seriously, then we would change the way in which we went about walking from to and fro. How we got from home to work, home to school, home to university. We'd have made different preparations to ensure that we got where we intended to go to. And of course, not to have changed those uh, preparations would have been mad would have shown that we neither took the weather seriously, nor our work or our studies, or, for that matter, any of the other activities that we were hoping to do. It would have shown we'd have taken none of that lot seriously at all. Well, as Christians, uh, we take Christmas seriously, don't we? We make lots of preparations for Christmas, don't we? But I wonder how well we prepare for Christmas. I wonder how well you are preparing for this Christmas. How appropriately are you doing that? Earlier this week I was uh, thinking about some of the things that uh, we needed to do in our household for Christmas and I suddenly realised that so little of it had much to do with Jesus Christ. It is, after all, Christmas, Christ Mass. It's all about him. You see, if Jesus matters most, then how I prepare for Christmas should put him at the head of my to-do list. In fact, you should be first, second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth. And then we come to the turkey and then we come to the presents. And yet I suspect most of us will say, uh, if uh, most of us will prefer to get the presents sorted rather than the priority of Jesus sorted. Most of us wouldn't want to say to friends, I'm sorry, I haven't got you a present because I was too busy and too caught up with Jesus. If we think about uh, our to-do lists, I wonder how much they really are preparing us for who Christmas is all about. I wonder too, if if you're a Christian, whether if you put your to-do list against someone who is not a Christian whether there will be much difference between the two. Well, our passage tonight helps our thinking about Christmas. It helps it to get right. 
and how to prepare appropriately for Christmas. So as we study God's word together, let us allow him, by his Holy Spirit, to transform our thinking, to transform our hearts and our wills and those to-do lists. And as we turn to uh, Luke chapter 1 this evening, uh, just consider that brief opening paragraph. We're reminded why Luke is writing. He says he's giving an account of things that have been fulfilled, things that were promised and have now happened. He says, verse 2, it's based on eyewitness reports. Verse 3, Luke himself has investigated it. So that, so that Theophilus may know, verse 4, the certainty of the things that he has been taught. You see, as we look at these uh, truths from God's word tonight, we aren't reading about a fairy tale. It's not a pantomime script, something that some of us will have seen this week. Uh, it was my first forward pantomime, and I can tell you that I really did laugh. Maybe that says something about me. Maybe that says something about the pantomime. I don't know. But as we turn to Luke's gospel, we are not reading a fairy tale story. These are facts. And as Luke's uh, narrative gets underway, verse 5, he sets these events in their historical context. We're told that it's in the time of Herod, the king of Judea. That was a very dark time. Uh, Herod was uh, not a nice guy. He was ruthless. He murdered his wife. He murdered several of his sons. He murdered several of his relatives and a lot of other people besides. And yet, you know what? As uh, the darkest hours of night are next to the beginning of the dawn and daylight. So after we've been introduced to Herod, we are introduced next to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we're introduced to them, we're reminded, my first uh, main point this evening, is that Christmas was carefully planned and prepared for. Christmas was carefully planned and prepared for. That first Christmas happened over 2,000 years ago. However, it had been on the cards for a very long time before that. And we can see something of that in uh, verse 5. Luke tells us how uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are linked to Jewish ancestry and we are reminded of God's dealings with his people, Israel. As we hear of Aaron and as we hear of the priestly division of Abijah. We are reminded of how God has acted amazingly to take uh, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt out to their own promised land. As we uh, note Zechariah's role as a priest, we are also reminded of how God not only uh, rescued them, but he promised to live with them and give them the means by which they could remain right with him. Later on too, in uh, verse 17, we're reminded of God's activity through the prophets, through Elijah, and some words that uh, Luke picks up on, a prophecy from uh, Malachi that we've been looking at these past Sunday evenings. All of these glimpses and reminders of God's dealings with his people, they're to remind us of one thing, that the Messiah's coming was not down to chance, it was an event that was foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, way back to Genesis 3 and the 4, when mankind first decided to rebel against God. It was an event that was longed for by God's people in Herod's time. They longed to be redeemed 
It was an event that had been on God's calendar for centuries. God had been carefully planning and preparing for that first Christmas. And then in verse 6, we're given a bit more information on Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're told that they walked uprightly in the sight of God. They obey his commandments. Again, a reminder of how God has called his people to live rightly before him and shown them how to live rightly. And then in verse 7, we're told that Elizabeth and Zechariah sadly had no children, that she was barren, she couldn't have children, and now they were well over the hill in terms of bearing children. And with all that background, uh, we're suddenly told, uh, verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Here was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah, and it meant that he went into, he went right into the heart of the temple to burn incense. But it meant not only doing that, but praying for the redemption of Israel through the coming of the Messiah. So, verse 10, the other worshippers gathered round, and as he was burning incense, they also prayed outside. They were praying for the coming of the Messiah. And as Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 reminds us, that would only come when God determined it was right, when the time had fully come. In Zechariah's time, they were desperate. Herod was a despot. And indeed, God had been silent. He hadn't sent any new uh, prophets for 400 years since Malachi. If you were with us last week and heard the last instalment of Malachi's prophecy, God did not speak again through his prophets for 400 years. But Zechariah knew that God would do something. He, had, he was confident that God had been preparing for that day. He didn't know when it would happen, but he knew it would. Now, I know uh, a number of you have been waiting for public transport this week, whether it's been trains or buses or even uh, whatever else you may have wanted to uh, go on a tram. And uh, sometimes your waiting was in vain. You could have waited there for hours. Uh, my wife, Ali, was waiting for a bus. And uh, no bus came for ages and ages. And then some kind man came and picked her and somebody else from the church family up in there, four by four, and took them right into the heart of the city. This week we've done a lot of waiting around and sometimes fruitlessly. But the truth is that with God and where his Messiah was concerned, that promise was never in doubt. The preparations were there and he was going to come. Christmas was carefully planned by God. And so as we prepare for Christmas, let's marvel at that. Let's realise just how important Christmas must have been that God had set in motion for centuries, he had been revealing what would happen. Let's not forget those Old Testament roots. If we fully want to appreciate the truth of Christmas, let us be delving into the Old Testament to read those truths, those prophecies about Jesus, about who he is and what he was going to come and do. Let's also understand that Christmas was always in God's calendar that this was his first and only plan for setting people right with himself. 
It wasn't as if God had set all sorts of other plans in motion and they'd all failed. No, this was it. And it was awaiting God's perfect timing. Reminds us, doesn't it, that Christmas is unique. It is God's one and only way of restoring himself uh, into right relationship with the world. Restoring us to have relationship with him. There are no other plans. God didn't fail hundreds of times before this. This was it. This was the master plan. And what happened next in uh, these verses before us showed that God was on the move. That he was bringing about that first Christmas. That the Messiah, the Christ, his son was coming. And that second key thing is this, that Christmas is unashamedly supernatural. It's unashamedly supernatural. Uh, On Wednesday this last week, uh, Lord Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, launched a campaign. Uh, It was just as well London didn't have snow, otherwise the campaign wouldn't have got off uh, at the start. But he was uh, launching a campaign to defend Christianity, to encourage Christians not to be ashamed. And so on Wednesday, uh, he launched Not Ashamed Day. I'm not sure about all the ins and outs of the campaign, but its main message was that Christians should wear their faith with pride and that they should be allowed to do so. I think this is really important for us, isn't it, in our day. And yet so often we find ourselves feeling ashamed. I think that's often one of the big reasons why we do not speak about Jesus. Because secretly we are ashamed about the events of Christmas. Especially some of the supernatural aspects of it. And as we look at these uh, preliminary events that lead up to Christmas, we can't fail to see God's supernatural activity everywhere. And just remind yourself, if you're thinking that what we're going to see is just a fairy tale, these are facts. Luke's already told us that. And if we can't believe these facts, these events, then we will find it so much more difficult to believe the events that these lead on to. More angels, in fact a whole host of angels that declare not just a child, but God's son has been born to a virgin and that he was going to come and save us. Not by becoming king in a great palace, but by dying on a cross at Calvary. Well, back to those uh, events leading up to the first Christmas. Uh, Verse 11, we uh, left uh, Zechariah in the middle of the temple. And just as he's uh, busy doing uh, this uh, work with the incense and praying, suddenly a series of supernatural events happened. And the first, verse 11, is that an angel appears to him. It stands at the right-hand side of the altar of incense. must be quite a special announcement to need an angel coming to say something. Uh, didn't, not even Prince William and Kate Middleton had an angel to announce their uh, engagement earlier this month, or at the end of last month. They had to do it themselves, so this must have been a pretty special announcement. Again, it indicated that God was on the move. He was doing something. Naturally, uh, Zechariah was terrified. Verse 12 When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. 
Don't be afraid. Why? Verse 13, your prayer has been heard. It isn't that God had been deaf or didn't want to hear uh, Zechariah's uh, prayers, but that God was waiting for his perfect timing. That uh, these events would begin to unfold in not only a child for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but that that child would be the one who would prepare the way for the Christ. You see, here was God acting supernaturally to give them some something in their old age that they could never have expected. And that God's plan didn't stop with just giving them a child, but a child who was going to prepare the world for his son. So in answering Zechariah's prayer for the redemption of Israel, God is graciously answering Zechariah's prayer for his son himself. And so verse 14 Zechariah is told, he will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. Why? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never going to take wine. There's going to be no problem of him coming home as a, a teenager or as a young adult drunk. Instead, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this baby called John, John means gift of God, was to be born to Zechariah, whose name means God has remembered. This baby boy is going to be one like Elijah the one that we heard about last week, that Malachi promised would come before the Messiah. And his role is going to get people ready for the Lord. Ready for the Christ, God's anointed King. So supernatural event after supernatural event in the lead up to that first Christmas. Christmas is unashamedly supernatural. It's about God being at work for our good. It's no wonder in verse 19 that the angel says, I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. If you're a Christian person here tonight and you are ashamed of these events, you don't want to speak about the supernatural nature of Christmas. It may well be because you fear that somebody will laugh at you. Laugh at these kind of events that, well, we just don't expect in our time. But just think, if you are scared of telling somebody about these events, think about how much more difficult it will be to tell them of that virgin birth, that first Christmas, about God personally coming into the world and dying on a cross. Indeed, about Jesus not just dying on a cross, but being raised from the dead, having paid the price for our sins, something that we will remember in communion later on. And furthermore, promising that he will return as judge, to judge us all. Christmas was carefully planned, and it is unashamedly supernatural, because it is God's work. But as I draw to a close, let me just highlight two other things, two other aspects of Christmas. First, Christmas contains appropriate judgment. This, I think, is the big surprise of this story. God's messenger, Gabriel, is not believed. 
He's come to a godly man called Zechariah. We're told that in verse 6. His, his spiritual credentials are very good. But he could not believe what he heard. Verse 18. He asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. He's amazed. He wants proof. And yet as we read these words, we must ask ourselves, you've got an angel in front of you, Zechariah. What more proof could you want? Surely that must be enough. In fact, the enormity of Zechariah's unbelief is that he's just been praying for the Messiah to come and now he hears he's coming and he can't believe it. This is why what happens next is appropriate judgment. Because Zechariah here is denying and doubting not just personal news about a child for himself, but the preliminary news that God is sending the Christ, that the first Christmas is on the way. And so, verse 20, the angel says, You will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. You see, it's appropriate, isn't it? The one who can't believe cannot pronounce blessing on the waiting worshippers outside. He cannot pronounce the blessing of the Christ's immediate arrival if he doesn't believe it. Now, before you start uh, getting judgmental about Zechariah, and it's easy to do so, isn't it? We must acknowledge that none of us naturally believes these kind of things, do we? None of us naturally believes what God says about him acting to restore our relationship with him. We may say, oh, there's no problem with my relationship with God. Or we may say it doesn't matter. But actually, actually, if we start acting like that, if we start trying to pass it off with excuses, if we start saying like Zechariah, well, we want a bit of proof, we must ask ourselves, why don't I believe the truth of that first Christmas? Of these events that are beginning to unfold as we look at them tonight. You see, when Malachi promises or prophesies or predicts the coming of the Christ, in terms that Luke uses in verse 17, he does so in the context of judgment. If you remember last week, the beginning of chapter 4 speaks of God's appropriate judgment and wrath coming upon mankind for their lack of belief in him, for the way that they have turned away from him and lived their lives their own way. And you know, when we hear it like that, we know that all of us are in the same boat, aren't we? All of us have done that. All of us have turned away from God. And yet, one day, Jesus, the Christ, who came that first Christmas, will return in glory to judge all of us. So you see these words of the angel need to be heard in that context. And as the uh, writer to the Hebrews says this, he says this in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we don't drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violence and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles 
and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I think these words speak words of judgment to those of us who will call ourselves Christians here tonight. They tell us not to deny the word of God, be it through angels or the prophets, or more importantly through Jesus himself. These events warn us against denying or trying to explain away rather than explain appropriately and truthfully what happened that first Christmas. You see, as we begin to deny those things, we drift away from him and we will be placing ourselves before God's appropriate judgment. Be very careful you don't deny and drift away. But it's also a warning to those of us here tonight who are not yet Christians that God will hold us accountable for what we have done with what he has said. Maybe you, like Zechariah, want more proof or can't believe all this supernatural stuff that we've been hearing tonight. Don't be fooled. Proof has been given in and through the coming of Jesus Christ. You are being warned here tonight that you face his judgment if you do not turn to him. So please, if you're someone who doesn't yet know Jesus personally, can I urge you just to check him out? To turn to him before you face his judgment? You see, for us, most of us, we think of Christmas as being about joy and festivity. But unless Jesus is at the heart of our preparations... We'll be selling him short and we will be placing ourselves before God and asking for his appropriate judgment on us. We'll be doing that to ourselves and if we aren't telling our friends, we'll be selling them short too. So can I say to you, tell it as it is this Christmas. That's the way to prepare. And then as I close, I wonder if you notice just over the page that Christmas is also about undeserved favour. There's a great surprise here. You'd expect that uh, with Zechariah's unbelief that that promise of the angel is rubbed out, is erased. And yet God graciously says this through the angel. Or God graciously does this. Verse 23. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, verse 24, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Then, she said this, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. She sees what God has done for her, and she realises that it is his gift and his grace. She says, wow, praise God for what he has done. And of course, that is exactly what we should do. For the birth of that son to Zechariah and to Elizabeth paved the way for Jesus' birth. Here is God's grace and favour. We didn't deserve him coming into the world to save us, and yet he still did. That is the way that we are to prepare rightly for Christmas is to prepare by seeing God's grace and seeing it side by side with his judgment and reaching out for his grace. It gives us a choice, doesn't it? 
It's a choice that stands at the heart of Christmas, whether we will allow these events to speak to our hearts, to show us our need for right relationship with God, and to allow God, through faith in Jesus, to bring us back to himself. That's what John the Baptist was there to do, to say, look, there is Jesus. Get ready for him and bow before him. So as we move towards Christmas, let us remember that God carefully prepared for it. God worked so supernaturally to bring it about. But it is an event that holds both judgment and God's amazing grace. Can I encourage you to allow those truths not just to dominate but to be in and through your to-do list this Christmas. To throw away the old one and allow a new one that has Christ as its heart so that you'll truly be prepared and ready. Not just for this Christmas and as we remember Christ's first coming but so that you'll be ready and prepared for when he appears in glory to judge us. Let's pray. God is speaking by his spirit, speaking into our hearts. Heavenly Father, as we have looked at these words tonight, you know where each of us stands before you. You know whether we are yours, whether we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, or whether we are still holding him at arm's length. Please help us to understand more of him, to see him for who he truly is, that we may kneel before him, that we may ask him to be our Lord and our Saviour. For we know, Father, that that is the best and only way to prepare for Christmas. So please help us to do that. Forgive us for the ways we've turned away from you and make Christmas other things that we may truly rejoice in him and his return. For we ask it in his name. Amen. And let's remain in an attitude of prayer as Kate Selby leads us.